please turn this evening in your Bibles back to Galatians chapter 3. And for now, I will read one verse, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. As we followed through our catechism, we have learned over the last number of months the duty that God requires of us, which is, of course, obedience to his revealed will, which is expressed in particular in what we call the moral law, as distinct from the ceremonial laws and the civil laws of Israel. And that moral law is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. So there is our duty before God. But while that is our duty, and understanding what these commandments require of us with regard to external obedience and the obedience of the heart and the trying of our motives, the Catechism asks, can anyone keep the commandments of God perfectly? And the answer should be an, an obvious no. But the Catechism explains that for us, doesn't it? That we all break this law daily in thought and word and deed. And then last time we considered then our sins, recognizing that we're all guilty of sin. Is all sin equal? Are all of our sins the same in the sight of God? Well, the Catechism told us some sin, sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And we showed how the Bible demonstrates that, that while all sins are evil, there are no good sins, some sins are worse than others. And so we came to see at the outset there that although there do the really heinous sins deserve, it asks, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And so look there at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. What does it tell us? For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Cursed is everyone, listen, that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, if you don't continue in the law of God, the things that God has commanded you, if you don't continue to obey it from the heart, perpetually, in all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your deeds, God's curse is upon us. All who do not continue in the law, the law that they cannot keep, are under the curse. And the Old Testament harmonizes with the New Testament to teach us this same solemn truth. So this evening, we're going to consider what every sin deserves. Three main points. The first is the evil of sin. The second, the greatness of wrath. And the third, thank God, is the marvel of mercy. So first of all, consider with me the evil of sin. 1 John 3 and verse 4 tells us that sin is transgression of the law. The word itself in Greek carries the idea of missing the mark. So you throw something at a target, you miss. We're told by the Apostle Paul that it is coming short of the glory of God, not reaching up to the, the standard of God's glory and holiness, as God declares that to us through the righteousness of his own commandments. And so this defines sin in a sense for us. Sin is transgression of the law. And you can repeat that. And you know the earlier catechism question and answer, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So there you go. You know what sin is. But the definition itself does not let you see the full heinousness 
of sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, God tells us that sin is the abominable thing that God hates. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 4. But if you turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1 and look there at verse 13, God again is speaking to us of sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. These truths remind us that sin, no matter what damage is done to men by our sin, and that is considerable, and God has respect to that, but no matter what damage is done to men by our sin, sin is in the first place an offense against God. And society today, if it believes in sin at all, doesn't quite grasp that, does it? People will get particularly frustrated and angry when they see the effect of sin against other people or when they feel the effect of sin against themselves. And in the church, we can have a very stunted view of our sin. We look at the horizontal effects. We look at the carnage that our sin leaves behind in this world. But what we're doing this evening is bringing our minds to consider sin as an evil before God himself. Because if you don't understand that, you won't be able to understand why God has determined to punish sin so severely. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse in this life and in the life which is to come. Every sin, children, every sin, your sins of speech, your sins of thought, the murder of a man as well as the hatred of that man unjustly in your heart, your sins of commission, when you with a high hand break through the limits that God has prescribed in his law, whether it be bowing down to idols or committing adultery, and then your sins of omission, the things that you don't do that God has commanded you to do, like not praying, not worshipping him, not giving unto God the glory that is due unto his name, sins of thought, sins of speech, sins in our action, sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of men who are not Christians and the sins of those who are Christians. Every one of all of our sins deserves the wrath and curse of God to all eternity. Let me help you. Let's visit the Garden of Eden. And what was Adam's first sin? Well, he took a piece of fruit and he ate it, didn't he? Consider the action in and of itself. It doesn't seem to be a really big thing. But yet that one sin, someone taking a piece of fruit and eating it, ruined the entire human race. Now do you get an idea of the significance of sin. Because, of course, that sin was fundamentally disobedience and rebellion against God. So some sins are worse than others, but even the least sin, the sins that you might be ignorant of in your own heart, the sins that you know but you excuse because you don't really think they're that bad, they're all worthy of God's eternal condemnation. We'll say more of that wrath in a minute. But what I want to do is to try and help you see why sin is so evil. We've stated it. 
but I want you to see it. By God's grace, we need to feel it in our hearts. Why is our sin so serious that it would deserve the wrath and curse of God to all eternity, even the least sin? Here's the first reason. Because it is a sin against the absolute law of a sovereign God. That's why it is so serious. It is a sin against the absolute law of a sovereign God. The very nature of every single one of your sins is an attack against the sovereignty of God and his right to rule over you. Every one of your sins. And so the eternal God gives to man an absolute law. And that absolute law reflects the holy character of God and it expresses his perfect will. And this law is unyielding in its requirement. And it stands or it falls as a whole. Well, take one of your sins. Every single one of your sins despises the perfection of God's law. It attacks the authority of God and you set yourself up as your own authority in his presence. We visit the garden again. That was the temptation. Don't believe what God says. He's withholding from you good. But if you take of this fruit, you will be as God's. Knowing good and evil, getting to choose what's right and wrong, defining good and evil, righteousness and sin for yourself. You'll be your own God. You'll be your own authority. But don't be fooled by thinking that was Adam. That is us. In every single one of our sins, at its root, we have this fundamental throwing off the government of God. Which means every one of your sins is spiritual treason. I've mentioned this to you before. Your country in many states still has the death penalty. My country does not. In practice, but in theory it does. You can still get the death penalty in Britain for treason. Nobody ever gets it. But you can still get the death penalty in Britain for treason. Well, here's your sin. A breach and violation of the law that makes you guilty of the whole so that the least sin assaults the whole government of God. The least sin assaults the whole government of God. Doesn't James teach us that in chapter 2 of his letter? James chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The whole law stands or falls together. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. But look at those words in particular in verse 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. What's it saying? The one who has the same authority commands both. If you break one, you've still attacked him. You still assaulted the one who said. And so every single sin is an attack against the absolute law of a sovereign God. But then the second reason is this, because every sin is an offense against the perfect character of an infinite God. I'll say it again. Every sin is an offense against the perfect character of an infinite God. Sin is transgression of God's law. Therefore, it violates the perfect character of God that his law reflects. To say it in a different way, sin is altogether opposite to God and his holiness. Sin by its nature is the antithesis to God. It is against everything that God is. Because sin is opposite to God, God must hate sin. It's not an option for God to hate sin. God is who he is. 
God must hate sin because sin is opposite to him. He must hate it with a necessary and perfect hatred because he loves himself and he loves holiness and he loves righteousness. He has to despise sin. The contrast could not be more stark. This is between total, absolute darkness and perfect, brilliant light. Between spotless purity and utter vileness and corruption. So that God, as we saw earlier, tells us that he is not able to look upon sin. Sin and sinners necessarily disgust an infinitely holy God. People have this stupid idea of God as some great human-like father in heaven that we can go and lean over the gatepost and have a little chat with. My friends, this is our God. He's not the man upstairs and all of these other blasphemous things that people talk about. He is holy, 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 so that even holy angels who have no sin have to cover their faces and their feet in, their pre in his presence and simply cry, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. Furthermore, God's nature and perfection is infinite. And that means every single one of your offenses is against the infinite eminence of God. You recognize the consequences of things like this in your own human laws, don't you? You can commit the same act against two different people, but depending upon the rank or position of those people, the crime may be more or less seriously punished. comes to a four, for example, when a police officer is murdered in the line of duty. The law requires at least life in prison, the whole of the natural life of the person in prison without parole. It should require that the person be executed for his crime. But you see, even in our corrupt society, we recognize that the act committed against two different people can be punished more severely in one. Why? Because one person is higher in station than the other. And so you take the police officer, and he's not just a private individual. He represents, in some sense, the law of the land, and he stands as a public, public official who carries the authority of the state. To strike him is to strike it all. Now you understand that in your mind. Now I want you to take that to God. Who is God? When you sin against God, you sin against one that there is none greater than. You sin against an infinite God and that sin is an infinite transgression which incurs an infinite debt which invokes his infinite wrath because you violate the person of the infinite God of heaven and earth. You attack his authority. You seal his character. You violate his law. And you cast off his government. If you want to understand the enormity of your sin, start setting your sin in the presence of God. So why is sin so evil? Because we sin against this God. How evil is that? My friends, words do not even begin to describe it. All we have are words.
But everything I say to you to describe the heinousness of sin does not even bring us close to what that sin is in the presence of God. I can tell you that it is absolutely evil, that it is abominably evil, that it is infinitely evil, and I can heap adverbs and adjectives to try and convey to you something of the wickedness of your sin. I can tell you that it is the evil of evils. Or as our forefathers in the faith used to describe it, the plague of plagues. Pick yourself up one of those books. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, The Plague of Plagues. Ralph Fenning, The Sinfulness of Sin. And sit down prayerfully before the Lord and study those things and ask God to burn the truth into your soul. Every single sin. Is that placing any weight upon your soul this evening? The evil of your sin. Well, what's the second thing? The greatness of God's wrath. In agreement with everything that we've said so far, every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God in this life and also in that which is to come. And you should be putting two and two together in your mind and you say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? This is reasonable. This is absolutely logical. We couldn't come to any other conclusion. Yet there's barely a statement that we could make in the English language that seems to be so unreasonable to the ears of unconverted men. Think about it in our society. We've seen this many times as we've studied the law of God. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, aren't they? We can hardly bear to punish a criminal. We have all these humanistic and atheistic philosophers and social workers what happens is somebody's brought in and they've committed a terrible crime, but they've no view of God and they've no understanding of man as fallen in the presence of God. So they have to try and work out another reason. How could he have done this thing? It must be a psychological condition. It must be something to do with the bad upbringing that person has had. And it's not a great step from there to then saying, we need to mitigate the guilt of what this person has done. We need to treat him, not punish him. You know this has happened. Some of you who are older than me, you've seen it happen over the last 50 or so years in this country. But what about God? God either saves sinners in mercy and even when he does that, he punishes their sin in Christ. Or he will punish them personally in his wrath forever. And hell is not remedial. Hell is not remedial. Hell is not somewhere where you go to be treated as a sinner to be cured that you might become righteous. The Catechism speaks with Scripture of God's wrath. The Bible uses many terms to speak of this in ways that we can understand. The Hebrew word for wrath carries the idea of heat or hotness. And you know in other places, God and particularly the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on earth speaks to us about flames. We have fire and judgment. And from beginning to end, the Bible would have us to understand the awfulness of the anger of God and the fierceness of the fury of God. People come to us all the time and say, you're a Christian. Is God not love? He is love. He is love. 
It's not only love. Isaiah chapter 63 paints an awful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a picture of Christ. The one who came for our redemption is coming in a very different way in Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom with thy garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel that's Jesus. The same one that we see in Revelation chapter 19, and he hath on his vesture, which is dipped in blood, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These are brutal illustrations, friends. Yet when you read them, you're not to imagine God is like an angry man with pent-up emotion flying off the handle into a rage. This is God speaking to us in ways that we can understand. God's wrath is not a passion. It is not an emotion. God's wrath is his justice responding to sin. It is his will and purpose to judge sin in his righteousness being executed. And it produces these awful effects. And the best way we can understand it is by these images. But don't you understand Scripture is so careful to warn us of these things? And so we sang earlier, didn't we, in Psalm 90. And I told you to ask yourself this question. Who knoweth the power of thy wrath? According to thy fear so is thy wrath. So teach thou us our end in mind to bear. Who knows the power of God's wrath? You take your worst nightmare, you take all of our worst nightmares combined together, and you accumulate all of the terror, and it doesn't touch the wrath of God. The scariest thing imaginable. That's going to do it for our own hearts. But when you reach there, I need to tell you it's worse. It's worse than that. So Job tells us because there is wrath, we need to learn to fear, lest he take us away with his stroke and a great ransom cannot deliver us. What's God doing? He's saying, be warned. Because there is wrath, because wrath is real, make sure you don't come under this wrath of God. Then the Catechism speaks of God's curse. The two things are very much connected, but in a particular sense, the curse is God's sentence of punishment that he is appointed for breaking his law. So if you bring that into our judicial system, the curse of our law would be the threat of punishment. You do this particular crime, this is the penalty for that crime. God has appended a curse to his law in this sense. He tells us that the wages of sin is death. This is what you will be paid as a just reward for your sin. This is what you have earned. You have people running around the world in different religions and they think they can earn heaven. And you've got crazy people sitting in Christian churches and they have been fooled into thinking the same. The only thing that you can earn is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. Spiritually die, naturally die, and eternally die. And so God threatens this curse, remember, against every single violation of his law. Not just the heinous sins, every sin, the least sin, comes under the sentence of death. And what we're seeing here 
is that he will most certainly execute this curse in his wrath. Let's consider it as it pertains to judgments in time, judgments in eternity. Every single one of your sin sins in, deserves judgment in time. That's why when sin enters into the world, it's not just guilt, it's also all the miseries of this life that we have to contend with. And it's obvious to you, isn't it, that God judges sin in this life. You find Adam in the garden, and he very quickly learns this. Sin enters into the world, death by sin, and misery ensues. God says to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. You enjoyed work for a time, things are going to change. Thorns and thistles is it going to bring forth, and you will eat your bread in the sweat of your brow. You're going to fight this, this, this thorn, weed-bearing earth until you come to the end of your life, and then you're going to return to it. What a worldview. That's the worldview of sin. To the woman cursed shall be thy conception. Life is going to be hard. So we see this general curse. And then you see many specific examples of the curse in Scripture. Assyria sins against God. God brings the Babylonians and destroys Syria. The Canaanites sin against God. They fill up their iniquity. God brings Israel to judge them. Israel sins against God. God brings famine and curse and nakedness and peril and sword. David sins against God. And God unleashes carnage into the household of David. God judges sins in time. For our sins, God might take away our health. He may take away our family. He may remove our wealth. He may even take our life. Oh, well, maybe that was just the Old Testament. No, no. It's the New Testament too, and it's even in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For this cause, some are sick among you, and others sleep. Others are dead. Why? because you messed about with the holy ordinances of God and God said, enough. You see, God, he brings judgments against sin in time. But something you should understand about those judgments in time is that whatever a man receives in life is always just, always just, and it's never enough. What do I mean? Sometimes judgments can be severe. And you know and have seen men that go through extreme misery and calamity. And in that sorrow, they, they cry out. Even someone like Job, he, he curses the day he was born. He, he, he longs for death. You have ungodly people. And they look at the world. They evaluate their own afflictions and sometimes they say this, my life is hell. You've heard it. Some Christians foolishly speak like that as well. My life is hell, but it's not. Hell will come, but hell is not here. They'll say, what have I done to deserve this? You've heard that, haven't you? Maybe you've said it. What have I done to deserve this? Well, in answer to those questions, even if you have them within, in your own heart this evening, you might not be able to trace those particular calamities, afflictions, judgments to particular sins, but you can, you can take it right back to the basics, can't you? And you can come to the understanding that every single one of us is a sinner. 
That should deal with that question, what have I done to deserve it? It should put it to bed forever. Every single one of us is a sinner. And if we only understood what that meant in terms of what we're looking at this evening, even in the worst afflictions we experience in this world, there is kindness because it is not hell. That's what our sins deserve, isn't it? The wrath and curse of God forever. And so we sit down, don't we? And we say, my afflictions, they're terrible. All of these burdens that have come upon me, they're terrible. My misery is immense. Your sin is worse. Your sin is greater than your miseries. That's what this truth helps us to understand this evening. Whatever miseries you experience in this life, your sin is worse. So you start from them and you say, sin must be absolutely abominable before God. Every sin deserves temporal judgment, but then we can say every sin deserves eternal judgment. Whatever calamity comes upon this world, or into a man's life. The wrath of God here is restrained. It's like we see little glimpses. So you think of the flood that destroyed the whole earth apart from one family. It's a little flash of the wrath of God. But when you die and leave this world, or when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and brings an end to the history of time, the wrath of God will be unrestrained. And sin is so serious that God is going to punish that sin in sinners forever in the fierceness of his wrath. You know that there are many texts in the Bible that teach this. You know it. We're just talking about hell, boys. So let's give our attention to it. You know that there are many texts in the Bible that teach this. That God is going to unleash his unrestrained fury forever upon sinners. Let's look at a few. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. And let's just let God speak. Let, let Christ speak. Let him be the preacher. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And now let's hear what the Apostle Paul has to say in First or Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power? 
may the Spirit of God hit us with the force of this truth this evening. Every sin deserves that. Every lie, every adulterous thought, every evil thought, all of the stuff we've looked at recently, dishonoring parents, provoking children to wrath, not loving your wives, not submitting to your husbands. Every single sin on its own deserves this. This wrath is irresistible. Sinners spend the whole of their life opposing God's law. People sit in church for years resisting the gospel of Christ. And in this day, no one is going to be able to oppose the wrath of God. No one. You think in your idiocy, maybe here this evening, that everything's going to work out all right in the end. You are delusional. You think that somehow you'll parley with God. Some people think they're going to stick their chest out and give to God what for. They will shut their mouths. And they will quake in terror. And God will unleash inexpressible fury upon them. And there's not a thing any one of them can do about it. It's everlasting. People try to pacify their conscience here. Oh, Jesus saves us. That's good for Christians, but the ungodly aren't really cast into hell forever. No, they'll just be annihilated so they don't exist anymore. Or maybe they go to a place where they can pay for their sins and be purged off them. A remedial place. Like one of the modern remedial prisons. Well, that God has one of those. No, he doesn't. They will be cast into everlasting burning in the presence of the God who is a consuming fire. I can't. I can't make these things weighty in your soul. I can't. Maybe you can leave a sermon like this a little bit scared because the minister has preached these truths maybe in a certain way. I cannot give you the fear that you really need to have of these things. Brethren, you've been praying. We should pray that the Lord would make these things sink down heavily upon every single one of our hearts. Maybe the ungodly will be annihilated. Maybe they can pay for their sins. But don't you see this is absolutely impossible? Why? Because God is infinite. And every single one of your sins, the smallest sins, carries an infinite penalty. And God, who is just, must have his justice satisfied. Don't you see your problem here? You have an infinite debt. Therefore, you are liable to infinite punishment. And for God to get satisfaction, listen, a finite person has to suffer eternally. finite person has to suffer eternally. And even then, your finitude will never provide satisfaction to God. Forever in hell, without rest, relief, peace, without any breaks, to get a breather, 
everlasting punishment in soul, in body, in hell, and no amount of punishment will ever render an atonement to God for your sins so that it will stop. The infinitely holy God just keeps on punishing to exact the justice of his law upon people in hell forever. I have a question for you then this evening. Listen very carefully to it. Are your sins worth it? You choose pleasure. We go through the list. You choose friends. You cast off the warning of your parents. You come and hear the word, get these little pricks of conscience, say, maybe down the line, yeah, I'll come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but on you go and sin. This is where you're heading. Are your sins worth it? Do you want to choose sin and the world and your friends and a relationship? Do you want to choose them and go here? That's really the choice that you have this evening. Some people escape affliction and judgments in this world. Their life seems to be very peaceful. But the sinner who dies without Jesus Christ will not, nor can he ever escape this judgment. And he will be damned eternally. That brings us thirdly to the marvel of mercy. The evil of sin, the greatness of wrath, the marvel of mercy. We've said God must punish sin. And he must always punish sin. But yet God saves sinners. How then can a God who must punish sin, even the littlest sin, how can he save sinners? Because he gives his only begotten son to bear the guilt and the punishment of their sins. Oh, that that would be impressed upon our souls this evening, equally to the greatness of God's wrath and the evil of our sins, that God in his great love and mercy has given his son to be a redeemer. Remember what we said, no sinner in life can ever make atonement to God for his sins by his obedience or by his suffering. And then you go into hell and the sinner in hell can never make atonement to God for his sins by suffering. Why? Because we're finite and God is infinite and our debt is something that we can never pay. Ah, but what if an infinite person is to pay the debt of the sin? then God can be just and his law can be satisfied and he can be the justifier of those who will come to him through that infinite redemption price. And that's the gospel, don't you see? The amazing love of God who transfers the guilt of his people and all of their liability to punishment and he places it upon the head of the infinite Redeemer, God and man. And he carries the burden of our sins to the cross. And the sins of his people, every single one of them. The heinous sins in our mind and the sins of ignorance and the things that we don't even know that we've committed and the things that we think are, are, are little. The Lord Jesus Christ takes every single one of them, which was individually worthy of the wrath of God. And he's cursed. So that we might be saved. If you've seen the enormity of your sin this evening, what could possibly deal with that? There's two things we underestimate. It's the enormity of our sin and the glory of the gospel.
because God in Christ has purged away the guilt of the enormity of all of our sins. So we sit as hearers this evening, and God must punish sin. And he will either have your blood or Christ's. He will have your blood forever in hell. Or he will have Christ's blood shed once for all forever upon the cross of Calvary. And you tremble in your soul this evening as well, you must. But from there, moved by fear like Noah, you run to the ark. Noah built the ark. You run to the ark of God's salvation, don't you? And you take Jesus Christ with the assurance that this horrendous wrath sleeps forever for every sinner who will believe in Christ. And this curse, this sentence of death that hangs over the head of every sinner, Christ has made, been made a curse for everyone that believes on him. We deserve wrath. That's what people don't understand. We deserve wrath. And every unbeliever will get it. But what we do not deserve is mercy. And everyone who comes to Christ shall receive it. You study this doctrine this evening, go home and start thinking about sin the way God does. If you are godly, then you have to react like this. Sin is the abominable thing that I hate. I want pure eyes so that I can't look upon iniquity. It disgusts me. It turns my stomach. And then go away understanding that when you do see sin, that Jesus has taken the guilt of it. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's stand to pray. Lord, if we can isolate but one sin, it's hard for us to take in. But just one sin and everything that we've tried to describe tonight concerning the hatred of God and the wrath of God against sin is focused on that one sin in our lives. And then we have many sins. Like the psalmist, we have to say that iniquity has taken hold upon me. My sins are more than the hairs that are upon my head. I cannot even lift my eyes. But we praise you that your mercy lifts our eyes. And we behold Christ. And we see in him all of this wrath, fury, everything that hell is poured into the Son of, Christ, the Son of God who bore our sins upon the tree. Cursed is every man who continueth not in all things written in the law to do them. But he was made a curse for us. We thank you, O God. O Lord, put your fear in our hearts this evening and even use this message to save our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.